Welcome to another episode of Tarvalon Talks. In this episode, we'll be discussing episode 5 of Amazon's Wheel of Time. We will do our best to keep all spoilers to books 1 and 2 until the end of the episode. But first, Diana is going to talk to Alexer from our Servant of All committee to talk about this month's Servant of All focus. Each month at Tarvalon.net, we pick a focus for our Servant of All program. Today, I'm joined by Alexer Alpetros. He's a member of our Servant of All team, and he's going to tell us a little bit more about what the Servant of All team has been focusing on in February. Alexer, welcome back. Hey, thanks, Diana. It's great to be back talking with you all. It's so good to have you. Um, So tell us a little bit more about what the Servant of All team is doing for February. So I'm very excited about it. I wish I could say it was my brilliant idea, but uh, I can't take that credit. It was the other members of the team's brilliant idea. So we went into February and we were like, hey, it's Black History Month, you know, we'll do Black History Awareness. And that's more like my level of boring idea. But the rest of the team, they were like, nah, nah, you know, we're going to next level this, right? Like we're going to raise it up. So we're actually going at this with two separate angles. And I'm super excited about both of them, right? Like first off, the team was like, well, no, we're going to celebrate successful black women. And we're not just going to celebrate successful black women this month. We want to celebrate successful black modern women. And, you know, I was like, well, okay. I mean, I I really didn't get it. And then I started seeing some of the people that they were suggesting. And I was like, holy moly, this is magnificent, right? Like I I was like, show me more. And a couple have been posted. I mean, Octavia Butler went up today. A reality show contestant went up today. I'm not going to say that I cried during her big brother speech, but somebody was cutting onions in my room. That in and of itself was amazing. But we had also been talking previously about wanting to encourage some real substantive discussions in our community surrounding diversity. And one of the team members was like, well, you know, you can't just dive into that. That's just really a heavy discussion that kind of needs a little bit of introduction to maybe getting the community a little bit prepped for, you know, a little bit more of a substantive, self-reflective discussion. So we came up with the idea of, well, wait a minute, let's not go that, right? Let's not just talk about the community and diversity in the community. It's Black History Month. Let's look at this from the racial perspective. And one of the team members were like, we're a drinking club with a book problem. (laughs) So let's read a book together. And again, I was like, well, I'm not sure. Okay. You know, I'm easily persuaded. And so I went out and I went to the library a couple of weeks ago and I checked out the book and I started to read it. Like, oh my gosh, why has nobody told me about this book? It's absolutely fantastic. And so we decided to do a book read along and we didn't want to just read along. We were hoping to discuss the serious topics that are raised by the book and to really kind of develop this capacity and encourage this culture in our community of addressing these difficult topics in an open, transparent way. Let's not be afraid to do this. I mean, I can't believe they picked this book like because it's like the best book to do this sort of a thing. So like we've got these two things going on for February. You know, one of them celebrate successful black women, very positive, right? And and so, you know, you can get very enthusiastic about that. And and that's great because then, you know, 
okay, we recognize the successes, but let's honestly look at where we are at as individuals and maybe where are we at as a community, not, you know, I'm not talking my community. I'm talking Tarvalon. Where is Tarvalon at as a anti-racist community? And so both topics, like, my gosh, we could talk either one for forever and a day, but uh, but can we talk a little bit about anti-racism? Yes. So can you say the name and the author of the book that we are reading this month? Absolutely. So it's How to Be an Anti-Racist by Ibram X. Kendi. And this is, this is a New York Times bestseller. It's a book award winner. He's published some other things. He is a, a professor and it's fascinating the way he, he organizes this. It is a discussion and he kind of breaks it down and he tries to get at this from breaking down the paradigm of you're either racist or you're not. Instead, he talks about, and someone said it in the forums, so go check out the forums and read it, but someone said it in the forums really well as we were discussing it about how his use of the term anti-racist is an active thing. Like you don't just say, hey, I I see everybody alike. You're like, no, no, I'm going to do something about this. So that's the book. Sorry, I'm so excited about it. You don't need to apologize. It is an incredible book. I'm so excited that the Servant of All team suggested how to be an anti-racist for essentially yet another book club this month, <laughs> um, because I have been wanting to read this book for a while. And I'm so, so glad to have a reason to do so and a community like Tarvalon.net to read it with. I've been listening to the audiobook because it's a great thing to listen to on my commute to and from work. And every chapter, I just, it's so insightful. It's so compelling. It's incredibly honest. Professor Ibram is incredibly honest in his own life experiences, being a racist, experiencing racism, and then also going through his journey to to become an anti-racist. And I will say that that has helped me sort of kind of meet him where he's at and also want to open myself up to his central thesis of the book, which is that anti-racism is something that we have to actively engage in every day. And also, like someone very aptly put on the forums, that you can be an anti-racist one minute and a racist the next. And I think that we have been taught, at least I was taught, that you're either racist or you're not. Right, right. It's a sedentary state of being. You, you do racist things and you are a racist, or you don't do racist things and you're not a racist. The actuality is not that clear cut. It's not that cut and dry. And I love that he really dives into that and really talks about it in a really open and honest way, in a way that I think is reframing the conversation in a way that's really smart. Absolutely. Couldn't agree more. He explains anti-racism a couple times, but I want to just read one of his definitions. And it's right at the start of chapter two called Dueling Consciousnesses, where he talks about you have assimilationists and segregationists and anti-racists. And he talks about how in the past everyone was kind of like assimilate, right? Like black people, you just need to become like white people. Assimilate, join our culture. If you just did it like us, you'd be fine. And then you've got, of course, segregationists, which is, you know, you're not like us. Stay over there. We're going to stay over here. So historically, it's been like you're in one of those two camps. And here he, he says, look, this isn't either of those. And here's his anti-racist definition. One who is expressing the idea that racial groups are equals 
and none needs developing. You don't need to bring anybody up and other people don't need to go down. Here's the best part for me. And is supporting policy that reduces racial inequity. And that's the part that really kind of blew me away. Because I've always had a tough time with this reverse discrimination or these affirmative actions. And I'm a lawyer by training. And so I've always said, well, isn't that just discrimination by a better name, right? Like, are we just sugarcoating the issue? And, and it puts it so well. No, no. What this is doing is it's reducing racial inequity, right? There's already an, in, an inequity there. Now we've got to make things equal. So it's really, I really liked that piece. It's really resonating with me. And as a lawyer, you know, I, I study systems a lot and I've been studying about how even the law and the policies that underlie the law come from this attempt to create inequality. Notice I'm not saying, you know, oh, we drafted this law, right? No, it's, it's we're, we're trying to create inequality and it's being manifested in a racial way. So let's address that, right? Let's address the inequality. Really love it, you know, really love that's That's only chapter two and I'm doing a book read along, so I'm not quite done yet. You know, we'll finish by the end of the month. There's just so many pieces I could pull out of this book from his chapter on behavior to his chapter on even light black and dark black and how the inequality exists even from skin tone colors. Uh, a lot of favorite parts in the book so far. Yeah, absolutely. It's especially poignant as the Supreme Court, I believe, is getting ready to hear a case about affirmative action and whether or not to strike it down. And I know that there are people who land on both sides of that issue, but I think I think you said it very, very well that that's one of those those policies that was put in place that is an anti-racist policy. It is actively put in place to create equity between racial groups because of the historical exclusion of, of black and, I mean, frankly, just non-white people in higher education. And an equity that we still see today, I work in academia and specifically in scientific research, and we see it reflected in the labs, even in a very liberal place like where I live. It's so important to really take in the message from this book and to really try to go forth and live an anti-racist lifestyle moving forward as the best we can. And also to understand that like people are not perfect and you can't hold yourself to a perfect standard all the time. And it's not that it's like okay to fail, but if you fail, that doesn't mean that you are a racist full stop forever. There are anti-racist actions that you can take, ways that you can look at your past racist behavior and correct it in the future to be anti-racist in the future, which I found incredibly hopeful and probably one of the most hopeful and, like I keep saying, honest ways of talking about race that I've seen in a very long time. Yeah. It's interesting how he tries to change it from it being an adjective. You're racist, right? A pejorative adjective and instead change it into a noun. That policy is racist, right? It's a thing. Let's explain what it actually is doing. And I think that honesty, it's really important to bring to this. And I, I get it, you know, I mean, it's scary to look in the mirror sometimes. It's always easier to say that person or this other group as opposed to really be self-reflective about it. As I was thinking about our interview, and I was, you know, preparing for this. And I, 
I was thinking to myself, you know, it's very natural that people segment, right? Like look at Tarvalon. We got blueage, whiteage, greenage, you know, we've got, you know, SDS and we got the DMs over there and the MD, right? Like the different companies. It's very natural as human beings that we we segment. The difference that he he really kind of opened my eyes to is it's unfair to judge based on the segmentation. <laughs> and here we're talking about that segmentation and racism. But I mean, you could do it anywhere. Oh, you're a woman. And now I'm going to see less of you because of that. To me, that's the all stop that this sort of thinking does. Okay, got it. There are different races. Let's just make it equal among the races. And you get back to that equality. It does require some courage because like, I mean, literally as I read the book, can I read another part of the book? By all means. <laughs> as I, I find myself reflected in it. Right. Like I find myself reflected in it because I remember I used to think, well, you know, the black problem is they're all criminals. I'm looking at uh, page 79 in the book in a study by, and I'm reading from the book now, a study that used the National Longitudinal Survey of Youth Data from 76 to 89 found that young black males engaged in more violent crime than young white males. See, it's their fault. Well, but wait. But when the researchers compared only employed young males of both races, the differences in violent behavior vanished. So all you had to do was give them jobs and the violence would have gone away. <laughs> like, oh my gosh, you mean if I take race out of it, I can actually find the real underlying problems. You know, well, what's the policy that is stopping them from getting the jobs because that's what i need to do if i want to get rid of violent crime i don't need to police the black people more i need to give them jobs right and that doesn't even begin to go into it's harder to get hired if you have a name that doesn't sound white mm -hmm. they have done studies like that and i now every company i work for i advocate for blind resume screening because it is harder to get hired if your name does not sound like it is uh, like it's a white person name. Right. You know, here's another brilliant example of that. So most musicians historically, professional musicians and orchestras are men. And because you had to audition. When they went to blind auditions, they put the musician behind a screen so you couldn't segment them, <laughs> right? You couldn't put them into a category it leveled off and they were they started hiring just as many women as men so again i mean of course we're human we're going to segment right oh you're tall hey you're short the challenge is is not making the next step and saying oh you're black therefore oh you're white therefore um and his methodology and his way of presenting the problem as anti-racist forces me and hopefully forces others to kind of break that kind of logic thinking. Go ahead and segment, but then when you when you decide to do the therefore, instead be anti-racist and say, whoa, wait a minute, I'm advocating an inequality. It's kind of scary to look hard at ourselves and, and frankly, to talk about these things. I, I hope that the listeners, and oh, by the way, if you're not a member of Tarvalon, 
you can still access the discussion that's going on in the Tarvalon forums. It's in the public section of the forum. So even if you're not a member of Tarvalon, go read the discussion that's going on. I mean, just wonderful people having this discussion and uh, seeing the insights. And, and if any of our uh, wonderful listeners want to jump in on the discussion, we encourage it. We want to hear what you have to say. We want to learn from others that are reading this book. It is a read along, but, but with discussions. Yes, people should absolutely jump into the forums and come join us. Thank you again so much, lecturer and servant of all team, for giving us the opportunity to read this book this month and to really dive deep into a really important conversation. I, for one, really appreciate it. I'm sure that there are others. I'm sure the listeners appreciate it. And I'm sure that there are others on the forums who appreciate it as well. But we also want to highlight what's going to be going on next month in March so that people can get excited for it and anticipate sort of looking forward to some other discussions. So what is the Servant of All Committee going to be focusing on in March? Uh, what we're going to be focusing on for March is disassociated identity disorder. Awesome. And I believe disassociative identity disorder is also shortened as DID. It is. So what is DID? Well, DID is a traumagenic disorder, meaning it results from childhood trauma. This trauma most often includes like neglect of a child's physical needs, parental figures, failure to respond to emotional needs, an unstable or unpredictive home environment, or, or even sexual abuse. Um, other early and chronic traumatization can cause DID as well, like medical trauma involving multiple painful and prolonged procedures at an early age. And DID is most prominent when traumas begin before the age of five, with most medical professionals agreeing that the trauma occurs before the age of 10. Wow. I had no idea that it was that specific and, and that was the cause. So how does it happen? Well, during childhood, personal identity is still forming. So a child is more able than an adult to kind of step outside of themselves and observe trauma as though it's happening to a different person. And so in effect, a child who learns to disassociate in order to endure the traumatic experience may begin to use this coping mechanism in response to other stressful situations throughout life and into adulthood. So while to some extent, everyone experiences kind of multiple ego states in childhood, which then later merge into kind of a cohesive single entity in those with DID, trauma interrupts that merging process and allows each ego state to kind of form their own personality and identity over time. Wow. That is so, that's really good to know. And how does it function? So developing multiple identities as a coping mechanism, right? It, that's what kind of protected the child. And so it's the brain's way of keeping a vulnerable, traumatized child as safe as possible for as long as possible. It keeps the trauma memories uh, and the associated emotions contained within a specific identity, often called trauma holders, so that they don't overwhelm the child. So as a result, the child may believe that 
that traumatic event happened to a specific personality and not to them. This allows them to disassociate from the event and not to have to deal with the fact that it happened. Maybe later, this is something that therapy and help from mental health professionals can offer coping strategies for when the child or the person's uh, system is ready. But you know, it's it's a challenge and, and it's it's difficult. And of course, it can affect that person's functioning in daily life. So the Servant of All team, we wanted to bring attention to this because it's incredibly hard to understand and appreciate because it's so outside of what may be our own ordinary and normal experience. Yeah, I'm really glad that you guys are highlighting this for March. I had never heard of DID before. I think I've heard other terms for maybe similar or, or parallel experiences, but I'd never heard of DID. And I'd certainly never heard it described in such a clear way or even like the source or how it happens and how it functions in a person's day-to-day -day life. So thank you so much for sharing that with me, with our listeners. I learned a ton from this discussion and I'm super excited to learn more throughout the month of March. So are there going to be other posts about it, more information that's going to be coming out? So what we'll be doing in March is uh, we'll kind of lead out with some general information and then throughout the month, we'll kind of delve a little bit deeper into the topic to go ahead and educate our community about this disorder and to kind of highlights and bring awareness to it. Amazing. Well, I cannot wait to see that information put out there. I can't wait to learn more. And hopefully that you all learned a ton and I'll, we'll also join our Servant of All team in reading their posts and, and educating ourselves along with them. Thank you so much for joining us again, Alexer. It's always amazing to have you on the podcast. Always a great time to highlight that the Servant of All team is doing. You guys are really doing the good work of making us all be more like Aes Sedai in our regular life. So is there anything else you want to you wanna plug before I let you go? <laughs> Actually, um, I really want to thank everybody because a horrible tragedy occurred in Turkey. We all know about the earthquakes in Turkey and Harvalon loves to respond to those things. It's imperative. It, it's part of, like you say, being a servant of all. And so we had a pop-up fundraiser for that. And the community just came forward and, and really responded uh, and donated money, not only through Tarvalon, we helped facilitate uh, donations in support of the victims and the disaster relief efforts in uh, Southeast Turkey and uh, Northern Syria. But some of our members, because we have members all over the world, some of our members took the opportunity, made donations, you know, to their local crisis and disaster response charities to also help those victims. Uh, I mean, it's it's just uh, terrible. We we actually have some members out in the uh, the Mid East that helped inform us and helped us develop the response to that. So it was very exciting to see our community come together. I mean, literally in in a matter of hours uh, to respond to that, uh, that crisis in Southeast Turkey. Amazing. Thank you guys so much for putting that together. It is 
an incredibly awful crisis that's going on over there. And it's great that the Tarvalon is, is able to give back in some way to the people over there. So thank you so much for putting that together and for highlighting that. You bet. Well, thank you again for joining us. We look forward to having you on next time at a future date. And other than that, I will let you go. All right. See everybody at the Spring Fling in St. Louis. Bye. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Tarvalon Talks. And today we have a full contingent of hosts to discuss our Wheel of Time on Prime rewatch of episode five. I'm Fenya. I'm Doll. I'm Diana. And you know who I am. Dewey said. Probably not. So who wants to talk about how shallow those graves are that they uh, dug for everybody? That is my biggest note from that cold open. Well, because the ground is frozen, because it's early spring, I believe. I think you're right. But... Yeah, but I mean, couldn't they use the one power to thaw it a little bit? It looks like they did, because they made a circle around the frost and snow to bury these people. So Yeah. But for that matter, why didn't they take them home? Maybe they just didn't want to carry that many bodies. Well, if you remember from the last episode, they took like a couple of days ride in the opposite direction of where they're, you know, getting to the tower. And I think it was still like a month's ride out from that point. So do you want to carry dead bodies for a month? Probably not. The one power, you just sort of wrap them in a sealed airtight coffin. I don't think they know how to do that. I mean, with with how much has been lost since the Age of Legends, I don't think they know how to do 95% of what they used to know how to do. Because... We have evidence that they used to be able to fly. And also, even if you wrap them in some kind of field, they're still decaying. Like, maybe you can't smell it. Maybe it's a block to to keep the scent from going everywhere. But I can't imagine it would be very pleasant to see that. Also, I don't think Stepan would be too hot on carting his dead, isodized body for a month back to Tarvalon. I don't think Stepan was too hot to do anything. Absolutely not. True. He does take her shoes, though, which I have always found like an interesting choice. Her shoes are hanging off of her horns. Well, that's a very real thing. So if somebody was lost in battle, they would take their boots and they would strap it to the saddle of the horse in the opposite direction. That's basically a signal of the horses come back riderless with the shoes on it. That person's dead. That's a real thing. Huh. I did not know Me that. either. That's very effective. There's no doubt in my mind that that is... Karini's horse when you see it every time you see it. Yep, that's why when they return to Tarvalon and everybody sees the riderless horse with the boots, you see everybody like oh, you see everybody react to it because they know that an Aes Sedai has fallen because also Stepan's wearing the ring around his neck and he's leading the horse. Speaking of when they enter Tarvalon, they go over, the as they're going over the bridge to get into Tarvalon, they pass our first portal stone of this episode. There are three. They pass one there, and Matt and Rand pass one when they are walking in, and you also see one in the first shot of the Tinkers in this episode. I don't know if the portal stones are just like a decorative Easter egg or if they're going to come up later in season two, but I think I said, oh, they're going to cut portal stones right before this episode came out, and then I watched it and I was like, look at them making me an idiot. (laughs) There, There are the portal stones all over this episode. Well, I guess it depends on how they handle situations in season two, if portal stones are going to happen. Portal stones are a great kind of framing device. Yeah, I thought it was three different portal stones, too, because they were all coming from different directions. So it's not just the one that they all passed. I, I don't think I realized that the first time. 
I didn't notice portal stones at all. <laughs> I mean, the only one that's like front and center is the one that Rand is looking at in the scene when Matt stumbles up and he's being a big old meanie because the, the the knife has taken its full effects on him at this point. I so don't like Dagger Matt. I'm very glad that we don't see a lot of him in this season just because of the way that you have to focus on all of these disparate characters doing disparate things. But he's an ass. Yeah, Dagger Matt's stupid yes as i've complained about at length so (laughs) i'll refrain this time we all have our personal pet peeves i do think it was really interesting though before we move on um just the decision to do that one month time skip and not try to compress everything or, or try to say that like you know this is two days later i feel like that's not a choice that shows often make it wouldn't have been very interesting television No, well, it wouldn't have been whatsoever, but I think a lot of the times shows try to, like, they're not blatant about it. They don't just say, yeah, it's been a month. They either don't tell us or they try to pretend that it's only been a couple of days. I agree. I do like that they call it out because there's a line later in the episode where Rand says that he hasn't seen Egwene for a month. And they could have just left it at that, like left that as our marker. But I appreciate that the show is being way more explicit about the books than the timeline that is happening in the show. So that like the audience remains as grounded as possible in the story and what's going on. And like, that's why Matt looks so much worse. That's how they all got to Tarvalon at the same time. I really liked that a lot. I mean, I I think they all mention that it's been about a month because at the Portal Stone, Matt goes, a month without a warm bed will do this to you. Hmm, True. I thought the banter between Moraine and Lan was really cute. Moraine was very much hinting that Lan had spent more time with Nynaeve than <laughs> than that first night. And he was like, what are you talking about? I don't know what you're talking about. He sounds so hesitant. He's so like, he's like, I don't know if she likes me. It's like, Lan, oh my God. <laughs> Every, everyone else can tell how much this girl likes you, Lan. Even like Stepan is teasing him about it later. And he is over here being like a shy high schooler. It's kind of adorable. Warren's yeah. <laughs> like, she spent every night at the Warder's Fire. It's a nice way of developing their relationship in a way that we don't get in the books. Gosh, I, I think I've talked about that before, but that relationship made no sense in the book. Yeah. <laughs> it makes a lot more sense once you see Daniel, honey. This is true. <laughs> it's very Sundari of them. That's because Nynaeve is Sundere. That is absolutely her personality. (laughs) It's probably why I don't like her very much. I think Doll's lost on that term. It's an anime term for who acts like they don't like somebody, even though they really, really like them. Playing hard to get, basically. Essentially. (laughs) Oh, okay. So, yeah, at this point, everybody reaches the tower. And almost everybody reaches the tower in their own journey. We still have that whole scene with Egwene and Perrin, though. Oh, yeah, with the white cloaks. That scene is great. It is really good for establishing just how bad Eamon Valda is and that he would go after the Tuathan and also shows like how set the Tuathan are in the way of the leaf. Also, the music in that scene is incredible. It's like the white cloak theme overlaced with the Tuathan theme, like as they're about. It's so good. The music of that part is great. Also, like Eamon Valda had said, like, I'll never forget a face, which is a line I always forget. And like, I'm always like, how the hell does he know that it's Egwene and Perrin? And now having watched it back to back to back, I'm like, oh, yeah, they do actually establish 
he meets them. He says he's never going to forget a face and he doesn't. And then immediately like spots them. I wish I had that kind of facial recognition because I forget a face immediately. (laughs) Gosh, he like just zoomed in on them like immediately because they were way back in the back. And he just like narrows in on them immediately. Yeah, I do kind of feel like they could have avoided all of this by being a little more circumspect when they were trying to see what was going on. But they had no idea that it was going to be Amon Valda. You mean they weren't perfectly inconspicuous, just sticking their heads out behind the the wagon? (laughs) What's going on? Who would have noticed that? I think this is also the only time, well, it's one of the only times you hear people say the word tankers. The Tuathan always refer to themselves as the Tuathan. Aaron uses it once. He's like, Tinkers, haven't you heard of us? But it's very clearly kind of like a term they don't like. And then the white cloaks also say Tinker. That's pretty true. And because Tinker is a slur, either the traveling people in the island or the Roma are often called Tinkers. And that's usually a, considered a, a kind of a slur. So they wouldn't use it. They are the Tuathan. That's an interesting sort of way to make, put it. A nod to that, like Tinker is a nickname provided by people from the outside that have a lesser opinion of them. And then Perrin, uh, when he says he, if he has to eat another bowl of curried turnips or something. Turnip curry. Something like that, yeah. He's like, I'm going to lose it. <laughs> I'm going to lose it. I think he specifically says that he will join the dogs, so. <laughs> uh-huh. Yeah, because they had that whole exchange with Aram about, you know, you're contrarian because you practice nonviolence, but you let your animals kill everything they come across. And it was, there's violence in us all, which every time they seem to have a conversation about violence, like Aram is involved somehow. Wink, wink. I wonder why. We'll talk more about that later. <laughs> Just saying. <laughs> later. Um, yeah, so they get captured as everybody else kind of enters the city of Tarvalon. So we kind of get like split storylines throughout the whole episode about it. So. Guess we could start with uh, everybody's favorite, right? My favorite, everybody's favorite, Rand in the library. Loyal! Well, I have one thing before we get there. As they're going to the inn, you hear the whistle and you see Pat and Fane sitting there in the doorway right right as they pass by a building. Mm-hmm. I never see that Pat and Fane. Because of the whistle, I know he's there. But I have to, if I'm like looking as the scene is moving, I cannot find him. I have to pause it every time. It's very quick. It's a, it's a very quick. And I think you actually see him right before the whistle happens. So it's like you've already missed him if you heard the whistle. Mm-hmm. But that's the first one in the episode, I believe. Mm, yeah. But then, as you were saying, Rand is in the library. So originally in the books, this happens in Camelin. Like They kind of condensed all of the events that happened in Camelin into happening inside Tarvalon just for sake of adaptation and story flow, which it works. There's nothing wrong with it. There's no detriment so far of these events happening here instead of in Camelin. There is one major loss, which is the meet-cute. We don't know yet. We don't get the meet-cute in this season, which would have happened in Camelin. I would say the other thing is we don't get to say Basil Gill say, I'm a good Queensman, because he's in Tarvalon now. That's true. And we might still get that meet-cute. I hope so. There's got to be some kind of meet-cute. It'll still happen. I'm, I'm confident it will still happen. I need it. I need it. You hear me, Rafe? I need it. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, we get, we get to see Loyal for the first time. And 
I was a fan. I love the practical effects they took with uh, with them instead of trying to opt for CG or whatever to be, I guess, a little bit more technically accurate to the books. But it works. It works. And I like it. Yes. I have mixed feelings about it. Obviously, I think the actor is great, but Loyal did not look at all how I imagined him from the books, especially because don't they say, or doesn't he say at one point that like people even kind of thought that he was a Trolloc and he does not look at all like the Trollocs as it stands, so. Well, that that was specifically because of their height and the fact that they don't quite look human. Oh, okay. Well, they definitely don't look human. Kind of got to remember that Trollocs for a lot of cities and everything are just kind of a legend. Unless you live in like Shinar or up in the Borderlands. It's kind of like a Trollocs are kind of a kid's fairy tale, bedtime story. Mom's scare you to go to bed. That's true. And if somebody that's 10 foot tall and has a broad face and slightly hairy shows up, whether you're going to think it is a, a, a Trolloc or an Odier. Rand is certainly terrified to see him at first. Yeah. Pulls a sword on him. And then, oh, poor Loyal. And he's just like, oh, you hasty humans. <laughs> I, d- I do like how he immediately goes into the spiel of, I've never met an, an Aielman before, which is, you know, pretty great. Yeah. Rand's like, I'm not an Aielman. I'm not Aiel. I'm from the Two Rivers. I feel like he should have noted that Rand was holding a sword, though. Like, he's done all of this reading on Aielman. He can just clock that Rand is an Aielman from the jump because Rand is tall and has red hair. But he's not like, but why are you holding a sword? Because he's not veiled. Aiel can't hold swords at all. So that is the one thing where I was like, come on, Loyal. Come on. He's clearly not. Or, like, I don't know. I just, it was a question I had for the dialogue. Yeah, he should have said something about sword, for sure. Instead of, I've never been an Aielman, it could have been, I've never seen an Aielman touch a sword. Yeah, something like that. Which would have organically also worked as, I'm not an Aielman. I'm from the two rivers. Perfect. Perfect. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Hear that, Rafe? Let us write. <laughs> <laughs> I wonder if there was something about that that just got cut out of the scene. It, because it does feel kind of like a big glaring oversight. Yeah. Uh, I'm sure there's there's a lot of behind-the-scenes stuff that never even made it into the episode. So that could have very well been a thing. Uh, there's also a, a couple of like book Easter eggs in this scene. Rand is holding the, I'm not going to pronounce this correctly, the Carathian cycle. Good enough. Yeah, which they don't reference what that is, but that is the prophecies of the dragon, which I would love to actually have in detail in the show because the prophecies of the dragon are like my favorite things in the series. It's so cool. He also talks about the travels of Jane Farstrider, which is cool, but then mentions that he thought that Egwene, I'm assuming it's Egwene, thinks that she's Jane reincarnated, which is another line of dialogue that I thought was strange. He says that Egwene thought that she was, like when she was a child, not that it's a thing that she currently believes, which I think it just further reinforces Moraine's idea that the dragon could have been male or female. Like, it doesn't matter what gender someone is in one iteration of the cycle that's not necessarily going to be what they are when they come back around i totally missed whatever we're talking about like i'm just drawing a blank on it when he was um talking to loyal about it and he said that he knew a girl who uh would read the jane parstrider every night completely glossed over that that piece of dialogue then more than once because i didn't even remember it but yeah, that makes sense. Egwene thinks she's the main character. 
I mean, of course she does. I love that for her. I'm not at all surprised that it is her. <laughs> it's just another one of those lines where I'm like, not sure I would have put that in the script if it was me. I am trying to remember now when they released, re-released Iowa World as two books, they added a scene where Tom was telling the kids a story of Jane Barstrider. And I'm trying to remember if there was something in there where Egwene, because Egwene was, he was actually specifically telling the boys and Egwene snuck in to hear it. That's the Raven's prologue, right? Is that what it's called? Yeah, that's the only thing that was added to that that re-release of books was the uh, Raven's prologue specifically, which makes sense because it's about Egwene. Yeah, I'm trying to remember if like there was something in that that maybe that's what that's referencing. I would not be surprised. But it's been a while since I've read it. Yeah, same here. I might go back and reread Ravens tonight after we're done then. So after after this scene, we've got our uh, Aes Sedai funeral scene, which is, I guess, a it, it, it felt like it should have been a bigger scene of the episode than it was, but it kind of felt like it got glossed considering, you know, what is it? They meet up, they talk about the ring returning and stuff like that, and then they melt the ring down. Which, uh, if you know how metals work, you know how metals work. I like that they melt the ring down, but like that's not how gold melts. It just it looks so bad. It it takes me out every single time. <laughs> I think it looks beautiful. It's a great concept, but it just it doesn't go that fast. It would have to be hotter than what they can potentially do, unless they're using you know, unless it's magical fire. Then sure. It's a fantasy book. It's magical fire. It melts instantly. Sure, can live with that. But uh, yeah, like Finya says, that's not how uh, gold melts. Yeah, that's just not how metal works. <laughs> but I, I do like the concept of like the the ring going back to the Aes Sedai and then potentially being used to make new Aes Sedai rings. It's, it's a nice kind of circular um, concept, but just visually it didn't quite work for me. It was weird. There has to be the power involved somehow, because like you said, that's not how gold works. It's not how gold works, but we begin to go into kind of spoiler stuff, talking about power and metals, and that's been lost because it's a story point later on. I never bump on that. I clearly do not know how metal works either. I think it's a gorgeous <laughs> visual. <laughs> well, my father is a geologist, so I know how metal works, and that's not how it works. My stepfather is a jeweler, so. <laughs> I just watch too many random YouTube videos. So within this podcast, we have a uniquely knowledgeable group of people. <laughs> so also in the same scene of the Aes Sedai funeral, we get to see the Forsaken statues. But they only show, there's 13 Forsaken in the books, but we only see, I believe, eight statues. We see eight uh, right before the tea scene later on in the episode. Yeah. And that's going on when Stefan's getting ready for his morning ceremony. Now, I think you can kind of tell who, if you've read the books, you can kind of tell who's who on most of them, but there's a couple of them that I'm unsure on. If you have read the books more than once, you can tell, kind of tell who's who. <laughs> hmm. Sure. I mean, you, there's at least one. Come on, Fenya. There's at least one you should have known who was obvious. If you can't tell who Grandil is, then okay, that is the one that you can recognize. Yes. Yeah, you can tell which one is Ravine and which one is Samuel specifically, because Samuel was always described as short, squat, flat face kind of, and uh, he has the scar on his face as well. And one of the statues was basically that. But the two next to his, I can't tell who those are because they could be Mogadine 
It could be um, Masana. I can always tell. So Asmodian is holding a guitar. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because he, he's our bard. Yeah. Pretty sure Lanfear is the one with the long necklace. She has a very long neck and she has a bunch of necklaces on. Of the three that they show immediately, you know that one of them is Lanfear because that's the one you just described. Ishamael, they call out by name. So that one's very clearly Ishamael. I believe there is one that has a spider motif on it. So I've always assumed that was Mogadian. And then obviously Grendel <laughs> is crystal clear. <laughs> and then do we think one of them is Demon Dread? It would have to be. There's definitely Mogadian. I feel like there's one other woman, and my hope is that that is Samarag, because I love her. But it could easily be Messana. Like, those two, I feel like, occupy kind of a similar space. Do you think they would merge those two? Because Messana appears so late in the books compared to, I swear, everybody else. Mm-hmm. I actually genuinely, at this point, do not remember what Masana does. Yeah, she does stuff. But not stuff, nothing in the early books. Absolutely nothing. Yeah. Oh, is she? Oh, I just remembered what she does. Yeah. Okay. Because Masana is doing stuff, or this is a spoiler conversation, so we can save this for the spoiler section if we want to. Yeah. For, for Masana specifically, yes. Because she, she doesn't appear until quite literally the second half of the series. Yeah. Yeah. Right after the Aes Sedai funeral is my favorite scene in the whole show, which does not have a single line of dialogue in it. But it is Lan coming in to see Moiraine after the funeral, and he just like puts his arm on her arm, and she puts her hand on his hand, and they just look at each other, and you can tell there's no dialogue needed. You can tell how much they can feel each other's pain and want to comfort each other, and they're just so clearly connected, and it's just such a beautiful, very quiet scene. That scene makes me cry every time, and I'm just like, oh, Lan and Moiraine, they're so beautiful. I love them. That scene doesn't make me cry, but I do really like that they show the depth of, of their friendship. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it sort of goes back earlier when they were coming into Tarwan, and Lan says that I said I are not supposed to die before their warders, or their warders are not supposed to outlive I said I. And you sort of see that concern on his face that that's going to happen to him. They just have such a great partnership and it's very well played by Daniel Henney and Rosamund Pike. And it's also really nice to see two adults of different genders just being really good friends and not having anything sexual about it. That's one of the things that I most appreciate about their relationship. They care for each other so much, but it's not like a romantic thing whatsoever. It is quite honestly a chef's kiss of great character writing in the less caring hands they could have easily turned that into something more provocative that would have killed it for me absolutely Mm -hmm. i could absolutely have seen someone who didn't care about the series quite as much not necessarily going all the way to make them have a relationship but do more of a kind of triangle struggle between nynaeve lant and moraine in a romantic sense Obviously, there is still going to be some kind of tension there, but it's not romantic. No, the tension there is always going to be, do I go off to be with the person I love or the person I swore to protect? And not because I love the person I was sworn to protect, which is a huge distinction. Well, I would say that he does still love her. He just doesn't love her romantically. Yeah, not romantically. Romantically is the key term here, yes. Right. And then moving on from there, we go back to Gwen being forcibly scrubbed down by the white cloaks. And that scene is just brutal. It's so creepy. 
I don't want to say that I love this scene because obviously it's a horrible scene, but I really like how they made it clear, crystal clear, that she's being violated without it being like titillating. We're not seeing nudity. We're not seeing sexual assault, even though there is an assault going on. I thought it was really well done. They handled it very well. Yeah. They could very easily have gone the the HBO route and made it extremely provocative and shocking and but they were able to portray it with just as much emotion without going to somewhere gross very respectful and i I appreciate that i loved how they unbraided her hair yeah they unbraid her hair and she complete to like lose her connection to the two rivers i didn't even catch that yeah and like that part also like breaks my heart every time i see that scene Because it's not just that, like, her body is being violated, but also, like, her connection to her community and her past um, and all of the other women is also being violated, of course, by these men who would never value that, would never look at that as essential. Yeah, it's it's a really good touch. Horrifying. I mean, it's it's chilling. It is part of what helps make that scene so horrible, but um, really, really good. Yeah, that's something you might wouldn't make sense if you hadn't read it because I don't think they emphasized just how important the brain was to her. I don't know. I mean, I, I think they do talk a little bit about it in the first episode with that coming of age ceremony. They do, but it's the very first thing you see. And by the time you're episode five, if you haven't read the books, that's long gone and the fact that her hair is braided is just a style of choice. Like, because they constantly talk about the braid and not, maybe not constantly, but you're constantly reminded in the books with how much Nynaeve tugs on hers. And it was built up just how much Egwene was looking forward to achieving the braid and being the youngest woman uh, in her town to become, to get her braid and become a woman, all of that stuff. But that's not really like that. Will, none of that has comes through in the the tv show because it's just too much it's not emphasized as much but i do think it comes through especially on like a binge watch like i i think yeah especially if you're like a first-time viewer and like you are truly going through it for the first time there's a lot of stuff that that would get lost the braid included but i think as you go back through it i think it becomes clearer oh more on powder oh (laughs) god he's so freaking creepy I mean, the scene just cements just ha- well. I mean, his his intro cold open cements how terrible of a person he is. But this scene goes even further with having captured Egwene and parent of. He's just like channel for me or I kill your friend. He's so convinced she's a nice that I. It's which is a little bit confusing to me. I'm like, why are you convinced that this is a nice that I and her warning? Like, what has she done in particular? other than traveling with a probable other Aes Sedai, make you think that she's an Aes Sedai. I feel like that first is enough to damn her in his eyes, especially because she has someone who's protective of her, who exhibits all of the signs of being her warder, and she's been consorting with someone that he's suspected of being an Aes Sedai. I don't think it matters to him. And that too. If you go back to the scene with Moraine and the, and the crew running into the Children of the Light the first time, there was a, you know, the very subtle but quick scene of as they're like Valda's talking to them, he takes Moraine's hand and he looks at it because he's looking for the ring mark on her finger because she takes the ring off and, you know, sticks it into her into her shirt. And he's looking for that. No, she gave it to Lan. Oh, she, that's right. She did. Yeah. 
And like it, to begin with, before he brings Perrin out, he says something about he, he's telling her he's going to kill her or whatever. And she says, you can't do that because you're sworn to uphold the light no matter what. And it's not right to just kill somebody. And he says, what makes you think I would keep my oaths? Yeah, I have that called out in my spoiler section of my notes. He has a lot of rings in his collection and a lot of red rings in particular, which makes sense since they don't have warders to protect them. And I also like that in this scene, they call out like that. He's like, oh, I said I don't actually need their hands because I know there was a lot of fans who were irritated that like the White Cloaks do take their hands in the show. I like that the show kind of like, even though obviously like the dialogue was already written before the show came out, but I do like that it nods to that that it is just sort of like an I said I crutch, but it's a real crutch. Like we see Moiraine do it. We see Karini do it. Like every single I said I we've seen channel up to this point has used their hands in some major way. And in fact, Egwene is different in a little bit of a later scene where she channels without using her hands in order to, to break the parents' bonds. I, I appreciate that the show is like, we know we're doing it anyway. <laughs> you gotta, you gotta remember it's these characters operating, operating off misinformation she did use her hands but she had them behind her back and she was doing the twirly thing no her hands are tied to the chair i thought that she used her fingers though yeah and and she's like twirling her fingers she's using her fingers she does that to do the puff ball at valda and then she's just and then she's just staring at it and she's staring at it and then it cuts to her hands and her fingers are going like twirling around Mm, okay, I'll take a closer look at that scene, but I'm not I'm not convinced, I'll be honest with you guys. I thought that she was using her fingers for, for both attempts to channel or times she channeled. I watched it this afternoon and I made a note of it, how she hid her channeling to untie parents' bonds. Because she doesn't untie them, she burns them. Or she burns them, but she did the fireball to distract them and then a smaller fireball behind her back. It's very subtle. But there's just a short moment where after she's done the fireball, he's saying, did you think that that was going to be enough to take me out? It cuts to her hands and you see her hands behind her back, tied behind her back. And her fingers are like twirling. And that's when you see the smoke coming up from the, the rope. And then she's just like glaring at it. And then it, he breaks free. It's very quick. And then that's the point when Baron wolfs out for the first time. Yeah, we get to see his golden eyes. His eyes turn yellow like as he's getting tortured. I made my mom watch it and she was looking away at that scene and I stopped. I'm like, I want you to look at the screen and I'm going to roll it back because this is important. (laughs) (laughs) She's like, what happened? What is he doing? So if we were keeping pace with the book at this point, this would be where Perrin kills a man and then starts having his trouble with the axe or the hammer. But we don't get that here. Also, I want to believe the wolf that they come upon that he's just like, Perrin's like, he's not going to hurt us. I want to believe that that's Hopper. That is Hopper. That's been confirmed Hopper? Yeah, that's the wolf actor who plays Hopper. Like, that wolf is actually credited as Hopper, and that's the same wolf who licks Perrin's leg. I did not know that. Yeah, it is the same wolf actor who is actually, like, just a giant dog. They're not actual wolves. Wolf actor. Yeah, there is. there are actual specific wolf actors who are assigned specific wolves, and that is Hopper. I just like the way you call them wolf actors. I know. I just wolf act. They are. <laughs> it makes it sound very intentional what they're doing. They're such good doggies. It is very intentional. They are. They are acting. They're trained acting dogs. 
Yeah, I know, but it's just such a cute. <laughs> it's really cute. I love them. Um, I believe that's also the same wolf actor who attacks, who like runs on the table and attacks the white cloak. I think that's also Hopper, who I used to know that dog's name, but I do not anymore. <laughs> I used to know the actual act dog actor's name. Oh, it's a dog actor now. <laughs> He's been downgraded. They're wolf dogs. <laughs> They're both. <laughs> so yeah, they the, the wolf attack on the Children of the Light encampment happens they get away you know you assume at that point that they they make their break for the white tower or you know tarvel on the city in general so next up we get this nice scene of Nynaeve has finally had enough of sticking around in a room and she decides to wander about the halls of the tower and she finds her way to the before she wanders off Steppen comes by her room asking about tea I still want the fan fiction where Steppen lives and is her warder. I know that's completely like not canon, but I want that fan fiction. <laughs> that's random. It's just, I really, really enjoy their relationship. And I really liked Steppen and I was very sad when he died. Yeah. But yeah, he does go by and he, he requests even more of the stuff because he's like, it's the only thing that takes the pain away. But at the same time, I hate that it takes the pain away because it's the only thing I have left that Reminds me of Karene. And it's just like, oh, well, crap. Makes it feel bad. In the books, whenever, if ever it happens, they kind of portray it as the warder goes absolutely ballistic mad and just basically kills himself. But we get to see a slow descent into what happens with Steppen, which is kind of a different tone than I had from the books of how warders handled this. Although, you know, if you're watching episode four, he probably would have killed himself fighting Loghain if he could. Yeah, I mean, he certainly does go mental very, like, briefly. Like, he goes, he gets the, like, blood rage very, very briefly, which is why he attacks Logan in episode four. But yeah, I agree with you that it is nice to get the sort of, like, very quiet, like, all-consuming grief that the warders are going through. And, like, that there is this, like, clear hole in his psyche where Karini used to be. I really, really like how they handled it. As we talked about last time, I think one of the, the strengths of this show is how they have humanized the warders and the warder Aes Sedai bond. And this is another example of that, where we see what losing your Aes Sedai does to a warder if they survive that long. And it's interesting that like Nynaeve sort of empathizes with him and tells him that it never goes away, the pain. We don't know Nynaeve's background here. like. No, she lost her family, but we. this is not how, this is not canon in the books. So we don't know what happened there, right? No, they never, they never talk about it other than the scene we got in the previous episode about how her parents put her in the cellar or whatever before whatever happens and then they died. That's about as much as we have. I don't think they've really ever expanded upon it past that. So we just know that she was in, in the, in the TV show, she was an outsider brought into the village because her parents had died or something. And then she goes out in the hall exploring. And she finds herself in front of the water statues at the hall of the tower, basically. The doors to the hall. And she's checking all that stuff out. And then our favorite red sister shows up to give her a hard time. I don't know. I'd say favorite. Our favorite frenemy. Do you have a favorite red sister? Probably not. Not who I can talk about in this section. <laughs> I like Leandrin a lot more in the show than I did in the books. Yeah. In the books, it was a, you love to hate Leandrin. Or maybe not even love. You hate to hate Leandrin. Hate to hate. Would that be how you say it? You love to hate. Yeah, it would be more like you love to hate. Yeah. Just hate. You just hate her. 
I, yeah, I, I feel like in the books you hate Leandrin, and in the show you love to hate Leandrin. Yeah, that would be a more apt description of it, because the woman who is playing Leandrin is, I'm bad with actor names. Kate Felding, I think. She's doing a great job with Leandrin. She's doing incredible. She's the perfect Leandrin, and it's just delicious watching her. <laughs> like creepy red sister sneaking up on no well, well sneaking not the right word but slithering in and skulking skulking yeah and like she's just so creepy <laughs> but yeah she just magically finds Nynaeve out here it's like she's been keeping an eye on her you know yeah she just happened to run into her which I mean knowing Leandrin <laughs> I think we have a little more to talk about Leandrin but we're gonna save it for later yeah there's a lot to talk about for the next episode specifically. I also have I have spoilery thoughts about her scene with Nynaeve. Yeah, but this was her only real scene in this episode, really. Is her scene where she touches Moiraine's cheek in this episode or next episode? That's next episode. That's next episode. I get I watch five and six back to back basically all the time. So that's I that's what I did as well. So it's kind of hard because they happen like literally in the same location. So it kind of melts all together. There's just a little bit of something in the conversation with Nynaeve that we should discuss in the spoiler section. Oh, yeah, definitely. So, yeah, she's she, she tries to be very courteous, but, you know, as Nynaeve said last episode, that woman's a snake. So she's like, hey, you know, here's the warders. Here's what the statues represent, all of the warders that have been watching us for, you know, thousands of years and, and so on. And if you want, you can go check out the library in the garden and garden like past library and then she just leaves and that's like all right that was weird but okay <laughs> was like, after like, saying she could she the persimmons are in season and then like yeah she just kind of does that re- really tight mouth like like grin and you're just like oh what is that and she like smacks her lips and it's like oh <laughs> Leandrian is definitely creepy, but one of the things I like about the scene is the sense that you get from what she says about how the world works, that even though the Aes Sedai, like these women, hold positions of power, they're still not necessarily, it's it's not entirely a woman's world. Like they they are still browbeaten and, and answerable sometimes. So I, I think it is really good at showing that the Aes Sedai and, and women don't have the whole balance of power on their side, which is just this really little detail in, in the scene that makes it one of my favorites. Yeah, I really like that line of dialogue a lot. I think it is great world building as well that like, yes, Aes Sedai are very powerful and yes, they are acknowledged as powerful throughout the world, but they are not. Like, that doesn't mean that all women hold all power in the world. And I, I like that that is still a, a piece of world building and also a very relatable line as a woman. And like, I could see why people would want to join the red if that is how they had been treated. That makes me think back to the beginning of the episode to where I find it, found it interesting that when they were burying everybody and they, you know, they showed Stepan burying Karene, they also showed them burying the King of Gildan. Specifically, Lan buries him, which I thought was a beautiful touch. Yeah, specifically. Yeah. Which they put him in the shallow grave that he deserved. <laughs> Someone tells Gildan, by the way, your king's dead. <laughs> by the way. They don't send him back. They just put him in the ground right there. Put him in the ground. If you go this direction and you'll find him in six months. Once you find that weird circular circular um, grouping of bodies, that's where he's at. 
Maybe they took his shoes off. (laughs) While all of this is going on, we get to see Rand again with Matt back at the inn. Did did we ever get a name for this inn? Was it was it named in show notes or in subtitles? I think there was a sign. Because it's Basil Gill's inn, but it's not it's not gonna be the good Queensman because it's done Camelin, obviously. So anyways, that's beside the point. They're there because Matt is potentially channeling. Rand is convinced of it at this point. Or was this in episode six? Am I merging this together? No, 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 you're you're right, because this is in this scene, like immediately after Nynaeve and Leandrin talk, then we skip to Loyal bringing Nynaeve in. Yes, that's right. I, I have always thought that there is supposed to be a scene in between those two scenes of Loyal finding Nynaeve in the gardens, um, because it is such a hard pivot. Because <laughs> he comes in and he goes, did you know, by the way, that we owe gear have access to the gardens. Yeah, it's so awkward. <laughs> Rand is like, okay, and? <laughs> Rand is all of us. He's like, thanks. <laughs> okay. And then Nynaeve steps into the room. And what I love is that they meet up and they start talking to each other. And Loyal is in the background. Still talking. Still Ogier, Speed, talking about how he found. I, I just love that little touch because earlier in the episode when Rand is running off to go see Loghain being pulled into the city, Loyal basically says, you humans, so very hasty. <laughs> it is a really nice scene. And then Nynaeve also like goes to look at Matt and see if she can help Matt. And that's when Matt snaps at her and grabs her. And she's like, oh, oh, he's very, very ill. And then I think immediately after that, we get the breakbone fever conversation and story. So Nynaeve is talking about how Egwene kind of was going to die from this. And the old wisdom was like, I don't know what to do. We'll just, we'll just kind of make it easier for her to, to get through the night and, you know, pass on. Cause uh, there's no coming back from this. And then Egwene magically comes back from it. And they present the story as Egwene toughed herself through it. But at the same time, it was Nynaeve was right by her side. And was this actually confirmation of this was one of Nynaeve's very first channeling of healing Egwene of breakbone fever. It certainly could be. I have also wondered that at times when I've watched that scene. I do think it's supposed to be a setup for Egwene and how unbreakable Egwene's spirit is because we cut then from the fever had broken not her to immediately Egwene in the White Cloak camp again. And so like just in terms of lines of dialogue and then cuts to new scenes as transitions. I think that's sort of what it's doing thematically, but I certainly like it as the first time that Nynaeve channeled. I think it's a good, could be a good like fan read. I mean, it could be a very much, this is kind of both of the things, a little bit of A, a little bit of B. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it doesn't have to be an either or. It may be not even necessarily her first, but at least a a time when she channeled because she was already training to be a wisdom, right? And she would have been picked because she could channel and just didn't realize it. And it's sort of showing that, oh, she's been doing this all along. But also, Egwene is a badass. And look at this. She's not going to break and cut to Egwene. Boom, baby. Look at that. Perfect. Subtle to the point. Without, you know, beating us over the head with it. It's very good storytelling. So, yeah, back to Egwene. <laughs> But we we already discussed kind of that whole scene. We sort of skipped ahead. Yeah, it's it's kind of hard when it's kind of, you know, scene by scene. It's kind of hard to, to, to go back to that. 
Then after the wolf attack is when Stepan and Lan are brewing, are drinking tea together. And they're talking about um, Maxim and Yvonne. I'm genuinely impressed with myself that I remember their names this time because I never do. <laughs> and that they definitely do the dirty, which was very exciting for me. It was like, yes, <laughs> everyone just get it on. This is amazing. There's a great moment later in that scene where Stepan and Lan are talking about like how much pain can Lan take because he can't be with Nynaeve and he's just going to have to pine forever, blah, blah, blah. And Lan says, I can tolerate a lot. And it like the camera specifically focuses on him drinking the tea. And then Stepan says, I know. And Stepan has not had tea that entire scene. And like then then the scene ends and it's like, oh, and it cuts to the sunrise and it's such a good moment of like just very short foreshadowing to like what's going to happen but that like Stepan had this plan all along to essentially drug Lan so that he could then commit suicide so good he knew Lan wasn't going to let him do it so yeah he manipulated Nynaeve into giving him more of that powder to basically drug Lan slipped on Mickey yeah roofied him yep basically with uh, a sheep's tongue I think it was yeah I think that's what it was then we get to see Lan waking up, realizing what's happened, and then running out into the hallway and finding Stepan bent over his sword. That scene is heartbreaking. Specifically that he found his way to the water statues outside the hall. Not just like he did it in the room right there in front of Lan. He went to a very specific spot and did it. Which is a beautiful touch on the part of the show, but it, it does add to how heartbreaking that scene is. No, it, that scene was perfectly calculated to just rip your heart and rip it out of your chest and then stomp on it. Yeah, because we get the nice background information for it in Nynaeve's scene earlier, and now we get to see a warder has decided to end it right there. The way that it's shot, too, when Lan initially wakes up, you're not 100% sure what's happened because the focus is very tight focused on him. And so, like, you don't see the whole room. I initially thought Stefan had hung himself right in front of Lan. That's what I thought too, actually. That's what I assumed because of how he gets up and, you know, goes to the table. Yeah, how he gets up, how he's looking around. He looks over his shoulder and he looks horrified. And I was like, oh, he's seeing Stepan's hung body. But he's actually seeing that a sword is missing from the display of swords. Like, it's so good to keep you like on the edge of your seat expecting death, but not giving you like the death the way that you're expecting to see it. It's so well shot. And then we get the funeral scene. So good. Which is like, now that we've ripped the, your heart out of the chest and ground it into the dirt, we're going to pick it up and... Do it again. <laughs> oh, Daniel Henney in this scene is so good. Oh my God. I know there were people, there were fans who were, fans who I don't agree with, who were like, Lan would never act this way. Lan would never be this emotional. And I'm like, okay, like literally... Let men cry. Let men mourn their friends. Let like let them have this moment of extreme grief and have it be on screen and be okay, especially when the, like this incredibly like strong stoic man, we've already established that, but like it's so important to like let him let this grief out. And like every ugh, when I would see people being like, Lan would never do this. I'm like, you toxic masculinity, you shut the fuck up. Go elsewhere. Hey, hey, I cried during that scene the first time. Yeah, it's heartbreaking. Oh, my God. And like, 
like Moiraine crying and Nynaeve crying because she feels partially responsible. Alana crying because she couldn't get another warder. <laughs> oh, Alana. Nynaeve's not only feeling responsible, but she's also seeing Lan and how much pain he's in. And she may not be bonded like Moraine, but she's feeling it because she's got a connection with him from their little rendezvous by the campfire. So, yeah, by, by, by all means, this was a very adaptation-heavy episode as there was no, like, you know, core main story progression. This was definitely, we're going to focus in on the world building of Tarvalon, the White Tower, relationship between Waters and Aes Sedai, so on and so forth. And you know what? They did a great job at it. Yeah, I think it absolutely works. I agree. This episode is so important. It is. It, it brings in a lot of context for the relationships and just building the characters, even if it's light on actual book material. It's also crucial to let your characters breathe in a show. And like this episode does a great job of being a pause point between like action heavy episodes and like really plot heavy episodes. I love this episode a lot. A lot of my non-book reader friends, this is their favorite episode, which I think is makes a lot of sense it also does a lot of heavy lifting for future stuff that will happen it's a great episode at this point in the episode we'll be discussing spoilers for all books in the series if you do not wish to be spoiled please stop listening now and join us next week as we discuss episode six Okay, I must, I must rant about the persimmon line because it is in my head all the time. So this line, I bumped on it the first time I watched the show. I bump on it every time I watch it again because the way that Leandrin says persimmons is so fucking weird. And then like immediately after, Nynaeve has this sort of like realization face. And I can't tell if she's realizing that Leandrin has lied or if she's realizing that the gardens are her way out. And I'm confident that Leandrin has lied because persimmons are not a fucking spring fruit. They are a winter fruit. I'm sorry for dropping a lot of F-bombs. And we, the show has clearly established at this point that we are mid to late spring. Beltine? But we see Alana eat a persimmon. She's eating an apple. I thought it was a pear. She's eating, I have zoomed, I have paused and I have zoomed in. She's eating an apple. She has a pear later on in episode six, but she's eating an apple. Okay. Unless they just don't know what a persimmon is. <laughs> yeah. So like Beltine, Beltine is a spring festival, which is in episode one. Then it's snowing in the beginning of this episode. It's probably like late spring, like a March or late February uh, snow. Then it's a month later. So it's probably like the equivalent of April. At that point, persimmons are not in season. They're just not. And Nynaeve knows a lot about fruit and a lot about plants in general. And I feel like if this was a lie, which I feel like it is, Nynaeve would have bumped on that and noted that and then been like, oh, maybe Leandrin can lie. What does that mean? I have no idea if that's actually going to be true. I think we will have to wait until season two. But this is my like Leandrin lied moment. To play devil's advocate on it, Two Rivers is very, very far from the White Tower, so there could be enough of a geological difference or geographical difference. No, it would go the opposite way, though. It would be further into spring, further south. And persimmons are a winter fruit. And there's no snow on the ground when they're on their way to Tarvalon. 
Tarvalon is more north than the two rivers. Is it? Yes. But that means that it's closer to Shay Ghul, which means that it's hotter. That's a good point. Not to scatter off too much off point, but yeah, that's a very good point about she could potentially be lying. And since we're in the spoiler section, that could be a very heavy tell early on that, hey, I'm not actually Red Aja, but Black Aja. Yep. It's also possible that it's a one that the showrunners just don't know anything about persimmons because they're not from the South. Two, this world is not ours. Like, we don't know how it's messed up the seasons or the climates or anything. So we don't know if it's the same because peaches are poison in their world. True. And it's also such a stupid thing to lie about. Like, why lie about that? The Hindrin's not smart. <laughs> She's not smart. <laughs> yeah, okay. But I feel like when she lies, it usually has more of a point. Like, what? what is she trying to gain by lying about persimmons being in season? She usually, even if she's dumb, she usually has a, some kind of reasoning. <laughs> listen, listen. She tried to directly head on attack a Forsaken in later books and gets her shit kicked in by it. So she's not the smartest apple in the tree. That's just her ego because she thinks she's better than everybody. And maybe this one she thinks that she can just drop a casual lie and Nynaeve will never know. But why? What does she gain out of it? Nothing. <laughs> Maybe she thinks persimmons are Nynaeve's favorite fruit. I don't know. <laughs> maybe, maybe because she can never tell a lie anywhere else. This is her. She. This is her one thing to where she realizes, oh, I can actually lie, and just does it. Who knows? Who knows? I think it's either it's supposed to point out how different the world is, which I highly doubt. Or two, nobody that's not from the South knows what a persimmon is. <laughs> we have persimmons in California. Do you have persimmons in California? My parents have persimmons. Yeah, I was eating persimmons in December. Okay. And like literally every time I would cut into a persimmon, I would hear Leandrin's voice in my head being like, the persimmons <laughs> are in season. And I was like, shut up, Leandrin. I know. So I guess in later seasons, we'll, we'll find out if her persimmons were a lie or not. So <laughs> we will see. And, and rant from me. Personally, I think Nynaeve was just like, oh, gardens, I can get herbs. Well, because Lo- uh, Loyal does say, did you know? that Ogier have access to the gardens. So it, that, that could have very well just been part of the scene that got cut of them meeting in the gardens. Their meet cute in the gardens. <laughs> That's the meet cute we were denied. <laughs> I'm more inclined to believe that her face was a realization that, oh, there are gardens, maybe there's a way out of this place, than, oh, Leandrin is lying about persimmons being in season. Uh, the, uh, the logical part of my brain thinks that you guys are all correct but my heart doesn't care. <laughs> Anybody else have any spoilerific things they want to talk about? Oh, we're talking about Valda and his not being a man sworn to his oath. An actual dark friend line. Yeah, that was a little less subtle. Oh, yeah. If the other one was indeed supposed to be a lie, this one was more overt. That one's more straightforward for sure. When they were talking about bonding Alana and... uh we know how Alana wanted to bond land after Moraine disappeared. Yeah, I wonder if they're going to have Alana end up bonding land and completely cut that other gray Aja, not gray, jeez, green Aes Sedai out completely. Marine, I think is her name. Oh, that's right. It w- All right, she did Rand, not land. Uh, she wanted to bond Rand. Yeah, Alana bonds Rand. Ugh. 
That's right. Yeah, she forcibly bonded Rand. Which is why Alana is my least favorite, or my second least favorite character in the books. It's like, I hate it too, because the the actor or the actress is doing such a great job with Alana that you just come to the realization that later you're going to end up hating her. So yeah, maybe like instead of forcing Rand to bond, she forces Land. Well, I wonder if, if Moiraine is going to pass, pass her bond to Alana because she and Alana are clearly like they're super tight. They're besties. Especially if they then also just took the Alana Bonds Rand plotline out of the show completely for like tighter narrative purposes. Please. I I wouldn't have to hate this Alana. That would be great. And it also would like they would have established that because they're talking about passing the bond this or not passing um, releasing the bond this episode. Like I I feel like they've done a lot of groundwork like to establish that Alana is going to be the one who gets Lance Bond later. I definitely think that they're going to cut out the random green who takes Lance Bond just because that's an easy way, like just make it Alana, you know, that's an easy way of cutting out a character. So I I definitely think that we're not going to see that particular green um, have any kind of importance. I would love to see them cut out the plot line about Alana bonding Rand. I'm less sure that that will happen, but I would, boy, would I enjoy not seeing that. Uh, yeah. I'm also sort of wondering if they're not going to have Moraine fall through the arches, at least not immediately. They might have her, this whole plot line with her being shielded act that way instead, maybe push it back to further in the series. This is something that I've thought about a lot. At some point, I do actually think they need to kill, in quotes, Moiraine. I don't think it will happen until season four or five. And at that point, you are halfway or more than halfway into the show because they are going to do eight seasons if Wraith gets his way. But it is so essential to Rand's journey that Moiraine is not there anymore at one point. And like you can remove Rosamund Pike from the show for a season or two, but still have her be an executive producer and then bring her back in the final season. But I, I, I do think they are going to do it. I think it is going to be later because we're not even getting to... Ruidian until three, I don't think. So I, I feel like it'll be end of three or f- in four somewhere. Thank you very much for listening to our discussion of episode five of Amazon's Wheel of Time. If you have any questions or topics you'd like us to talk about, feel free to shoot us an email. Our email is producer.tvt at gmail.com. Or you can also find us on the tarvalon.net forums. In the general forum, there's a thread called Tarvalon Talks that's pinned at the top of the page. You can chat with us there, or you can also chat with us via tarvalon.net's Discord server. We have a channel for the podcast. 